So smaller group today. Um, I think people are trying to get caught up on their their uh, travels. I mean, listen, I was I know I shared this in the beginning. Maybe not everybody's here, but I, I was like totally depressed when I went to Gap. I got these new jeans, and this lady tells me, and I know it, I know it's coming, but I just didn't want to hear it. She's like, hey, Monday, our fall collection is coming in. I'm like, no, no. And some of you are like, what do you mean? I mean, I'm just not ready for fall. That's what I'm, that's the joke, okay? Fall, (laughs) maybe not too funny, but anyways, fall and winter are just a bear, man, bear. How many enjoyed February? I mean, I wanted to rebuke February. I thought Satan, really, I thought the devil was at work in the month of February with that snow. I mean, it's ungodly. And it just didn't leave. How many here that just, I think last week, Ricardo, I heard on the news, just like the biggest snow mound in Boston, which was how high, how high, Ricardo? Do you know? Ten stories. A thousand feet. Just melted. Who wants to hear that? God. You know, we get to meet a lot of people from California, and I just get so jealous because you guys just have the coolest weather. But you're on a fault line. And no, that's, never mind. Let's, let's, let's go on. Yeah. See, you're smiling, and that is what it's all about. Amen. Well, <laughs> praise God. That just came out of my mouth. I, this is all new material, it's free. Um, Wendy, you can smile. It's okay. Um, anyways, uh, no, um, listen, I need grace today as I preach the word. Um, I feel like, you know. I'm kind of cleaning up, so to speak, or I'm at the tail end, if you would, of great messages. And my hope and my desire is to do the justice that's uh, been done thus far to give it the integrity and the depth and the richness of what has been presented, because I believe um, that is just what you guys have had for the month of July, and I've been able to sit down and listen and just be totally impressed and... and, um, and totally moved in my heart and spirit, and I'm just grateful to be in a community like this, to be amongst people that can pastor, um, not as bad, good as me, but just, just you know, just as well, maybe, a couple of years. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we need your grace, uh, and Lord, I need your grace. Uh, I need the ability to communicate clear. Lord, I, I want to articulate with power, God, um, uh, your word. God, I just don't want to have fancy words and fancy language. I want uh, language that pierces the heart, that touches the mind. God, we just ask, I ask, Lord, for the aid of your Holy Spirit this morning as I, as we get into the Word. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. All right, if you would, turn with me to Romans chapter 12. We're going to just read two verses. Um, the first two verses, one and two. You can put it up on the overhead if you have it, the ESV. I think I'll be writing, reading Excuse me, um, out of Romans 12. That's Romans chapter 12, the first two verses. This is Paul speaking to the Roman people. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, as a living sacrifice, excuse me, holy and acceptable to God, which is what? your spiritual worship. Is that what it says here? Which is your spiritual worship. I only say that because some translations say your acceptable service. And that's equally important as we kind of unpack um, these two verses in the book of Romans. Verse 2, it says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Romans chapter 12, in the first two verses, Paul makes an appeal, doesn't he? He makes an appeal to the Roman people to worship the Lord by presenting their bodies as a living sacrifice, keeping themselves, what? Holy. The kind of holiness that is acceptable to God. Now, I know maybe some of the language, living sacrifice, seems to be a bit Old Testament, uh, Old Testament, but essentially what Paul is saying is let your whole body be as a sacrifice unto God completely, every facet. I would explain it like this. 
the first commandment, thou shall love the Lord with everything, your heart, your mind, your soul. So don't get caught up on the language Paul uses it. It is kind of Old Testament because we know that, well, you know, Old Testament sacrifices, you know, you had to get an animal, usually a goat or something, or bull, slice their throat, and somehow, some way, in the eyes of God, that was a good enough atonement for sin at the time. Um, but it only, it only foreshadowed something that was to come. And that was the Lamb of God being the ultimate sacrifice for mankind. And so, essentially, by Paul using that Old Testament kind of language, it's just him saying, with everything, everything. It's not just, it's your whole body. It's every facet, every member. And you can find that in many of Paul's writings. Uh, you know, about worshiping our, our, our giving your members, you know, your facets, your fingers, your hands, your eyes, your heart, to God as a sacrifice. And so Paul's summons to transform our lives, that's exactly what he does in the opening of verse 1, does not happen. It doesn't take place in some kind of vacuum. It's only in view of God's mercy. Remember, the opening statement is, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. And it's only by God's mercy that the appeal becomes relevant. Okay? It's only by what Jesus has done that that appeal to give our bodies as living sacrifices to the Lord appeals to us and becomes relevant. And most of all, it requires or demands, if you would, our complete obedience. So it's not, in other words, it's not Paul trying to demand it. Paul is saying, in light of what Christ has done for you, now you are to do And as you do this, it translates, if you would, to glorifying God. Essentially, Paul encourages us to look at the entire, our entire Christian lives as acts of worship. That it's not just what's done here on Sunday, today, that ascribes worth to God. But it's what the world sees, it's what God sees in our everyday lives, in our actions, in our speech, in our conduct. It's that and what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, that ascribes worth to God. So it transcends what we just did this morning. Worship goes beyond this kind of charismatic, you know, whatever, music and drums. This is not worship. According to Romans chapter 12, this I would explain as corporate worship, as something that we do as a body together. But when it comes to individual worship, Paul explains it in Romans chapter 12 as something that goes far deeper than just this time of music that we have. In uh, verse 2 of Romans chapter 12, Paul explains more in detail how this giving of ourselves as living sacrifices are to be carried out or lived out. And what is required, according to verse 2, is nothing less than total transformation of our worldview. Let me say that. What's required for this whole process to take place, this whole renewing of our mind to take place, happens not in a vacuum, but it happens as our, our worldview is transformed by another view, a kingdom view, a heavenly view. Remember, verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. In other words, Paul is reminding us that we are no longer to pattern our lives. Listen to me. You, me as followers, and maybe that's a bit of an assumption, assuming that everybody is following the Lord here, but let me speak to those who believe, those who have accepted Jesus as their personal Savior, um, Paul is reminding us that we are no longer to pattern our lives by the standards and the protocols of this world. But we are to live in a way that exemplifies our new life in Christ, provided by Christ. Let me read that again. Paul is reminding us that we are no longer to pattern our lives by the standards or the protocols of this world, 
But we are to live in a way that glorifies God, that exemplifies, that sh- the, the people that God sees, the fruit of Christ in our life. But it simply comes only by the mercies of God. He's provided it. He's given it. I'm not talking about righteousness that happens by your own deeds or your own works. I'm, I'm talking about something that your heart is meant to respond to because of what Christ has done. Let me... I'm talking about something that we as believers need to respond to, not out of some duty, not of some kind of religion, but because Christ has demanded it by His work, by His sacrifice on the cross. Oh, this is awesome. I'm just finding out that um, my full notes aren't here. Glory be to you, God. I've got a backup plan. Intermission, five seconds. This isn't supposed to happen, but it is. Everybody all right? You happy? Okay. Tell your neighbor. Say you're happy. Now tell your face, I'm happy. It always helps. You know, usually what's going on the outside, in the inside should manifest on the outside. All right, let's see. God, give us grace, because if I don't have my notes, Lord, this is going to sink Okay. For whatever reasons, when I... Uh... Oh, God, no. Okay. Jesus. Aha. Okay, so we're going to have the laptop. We're going to have this awkwardly apple. I'm sure that's spiritual. That means something that maybe happened in the book of Genesis. But do we have any gaff tape? Maybe I can tape over that. No. Um... So let me just start with my lax. Uh, point here is that Paul reminds us that we are no longer to pattern our lives by the standards and the protocols of this world, but we are to live in a way that exemplifies our new life in Christ, provided by Christ. And in this, listen to me, in all of this, in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, in all of this, this transformation only takes place by the renewing of our mind so we can, what, rightly discern, according to what Paul said, what is good was acceptable to God. And in all this, God is glorified. And and that transformation in you shining or reflecting the work of the cross in and through your life, God is given glory. In other words, to give ourselves completely to the Lord in Paul's definition is a reasonable act of worship. Are you hearing me? To give ourselves completely to the Lord, here in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, in Paul's definition, is a reasonable, sensible response to God that ascribes unto Him worth. Psalms 29, verse 2 says this, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name and worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. In Psalms, he is not talking about the holiness of God. He is talking to the holiness of the individual. In other words, the, 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 the psalm here is that we ascribe to the Lord the glory that's due His name. We worship the Lord in the splendor of our holiness. Okay, okay, you, I know, you just, you just, you flushed me down the toilet. Okay, I get you. All right, but, but I'm going to come up. Maybe that was a bad analogy, but some of you are smiling, so it works. Okay. Um, listen, we have to understand, all righteousness in and of itself is what, according to Scripture? Filthy rags. It's filthy rags. This is the righteousness that we receive again. See, it all points to Christ. It all points that our righteousness is in Christ. It's provided by Christ. But the way that we partner, the way that we kind of lock in as believers is allowing this transformation of our mind, this renewing of our mind to take place so that we are kind of, in a sense, snatched from one way of thinking into another. And as we are more attached to this way of thinking, God's way of thinking, God's way of life, we ascribe to the Lord worth and value and worship. And so, this would just be a shallow means of worship. 
in the sense of Romans chapter 12. It's good. It's right, like what we do here. But really, what glorifies the Lord the most is when our lives are shining the work of Christ, that our righteousnesses are not, our righteousness, excuse me, is not in our works, but in what Christ has done, knowing that and then reflecting that in the earth. That means when you're at your job, when you're at your classroom, when you're at church, wherever it is, whatever you do, what you do glorifies God as a believer. And 90% of people come to know Jesus. I'm making this statistic up, but I'm the pastor and I have the mic. So um, in my experience, a lot of people come to Jesus, not because a man stands up here and preaches, although that happens. A lot of people's introduction to God, introduction to saving grace, is what they see in the people who are following Christ. Come on. I mean, is this to A, B, and C? Come on, we're going to preach today. You got a lot of theology from David, a lot of richness from Will, a lot of preaching from Beth. I'm bringing it back to the preach. Do you understand that today, the only hindrance in people seeing Jesus is us? And in, 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 in Romans chapter 12, we see that we have a duty, so to speak. We have a work to do. And in that, our work is this, is that Jesus is seen, not by necessarily what we say, but how we live, how we serve, how we love. You know, I think if there is a story in the Bible where you saw just somebody getting it so wrong about worship, is in John chapter 4. The woman at the well. You're probably very familiar, and you probably have heard uh, this story or this chapter in a different way that I'm going to present it to you today. Because essentially, I'm just going to focus on four verses, 20 through 24. That leaves 1 through 19 just kind of up in the air. But 20 through 24, you see where a woman who had a cavernous need, listen to me, she had a deep need for one thing that she could not recognize as the Messiah was before her. And her one need was Jesus, and Jesus offered himself to her. But even in uh, really unengaging or, uh, or kind of just daffing out, so to speak, just, you know, she doesn't even see uh, that in her need. And Jesus points it out plain and simple. And essentially, even after Jesus points it out, she still doesn't get it. Turn with me to John chapter 4. Is this okay? So to recap, so to speak, or to give verses 1, 9, of 1 through 19, you know, just not kind of doing away with it. Essentially, Jesus is on a journey. He is going to Galilee. He has to leave from Judea, and the quickest route on foot happens to go through Samaria. Okay? And, of course, if you're familiar with the story, you know that at this time in history, there is some bad blood between the Samaritans and the Jews. Essentially, Jews are kind of like, you know, we're the big dogs, you know, we got the old, the OT, the Old Testament, you don't, you're Samaritans, you are below us, and essentially that's the way it translates to the Samaritans. They have a real low view of themselves, and a kind of like this look, outlook of the Samaritans, I mean, a Jewish people as being very prideful. And so, we can see that in the interaction between Jesus and the women of the well. Let's pick up in verses uh, 7, just to uh, be brief and not take up too much time. It says this, A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The woman of Samaria said to him, Sorry, there's a little writing. I need to make sure. Maybe I should use my finger. How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me? So right there you see the tension. There's like, hey, what do you, what do you, what do you, what are you talking to me for? Well, you know, you guys don't, we don't, we don't talk, man. What are you doing asking me for a drink? Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it, who it said, I'm sorry, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water, right? So the story goes. Verse 11, listen to what the woman says. Uh, this is a, 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 a kind of like, 
Nicodemus moment for Jesus. You know the, the, the conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus? It's like Jesus tries to bring it to the heart of the issue. He tries to bring it to like the spiritual things, like the things that in his mind, I'm sure, and in our mind, things that we value of something of depth, depth, excuse me. And both Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, they totally miss it. Like Nicodemus is like, how can I be born again? What do you mean? I've got to crawl back in my mouth? That's disgusting. I don't even know where to get that, but that's what he said. And so, you know, they just try to keep... <laughs> oh, God. I belong in Seattle. Uh, and so this conversation is much like that. Jesus is trying to bring it to the heart of the matter, and this woman is just saying, no, external, 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 keep you out, keep you out, keep you out. And so in verse... 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and this well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks this water will thirst again. He's talking about Jacob's well. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become... In him, a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Now, don't get caught up on the language. Jesus is just offering her salvation. And ultimately, something that will satisfy her beyond just getting that temporary satisfaction from Jacob's well. And honestly, as the conversation goes on, Jesus points out this deep need in the woman, this thing of which he wants to fill And he can only fill it by the means of salvation. Are you with me? Okay, smile. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Again, this woman is just keeping the conversation at bay. I mean, he's talking about living water and she's just like, Hey, listen, give me this water so I don't have to drink again. Now, this girl came to the well at a very awkward time of the day. You find out in earlier chapters, 1 through 5, that it was like uh, noon. I think that's what it translates to in time. And noon was the hottest time in Samaria. And normally, Samaritans didn't come to the well at this time. So mostly, most likely, excuse me, she was an outcast, even amongst her own people. She went there at that time, so she wouldn't be seen. And Jesus was there, well, because he was tired and thirsty. Long foot journey. They didn't have planes, nor cars, nor horses. Thank you, Jesus, that although Sarah Riyadh is traveling back from California car, she's crazy. I'm praying for her, but it's crazy. But thank God we don't have to do this. So Jesus is there because he is thirsty, which speaks of Jesus' humanity. If you ever had a doubt, was Jesus human? Was he a man? Yes, he thirsted like we thirst. He had natural desires, natural things that he needed uh, uh, to be as a man. And thank God, just in case if any of you guys were clueless about that. Um, and then the woman said to her, or he answered, um, sorry, let me pick myself up. In verse 16, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband. Tell him to come here. Uh-oh, where did that come from, Jesus? We're talking about living water. This girl is saying, hey, give me this water, not because she wants to be eternally satisfied. She just wants not to come to this well again and draw water. Simple. And Jesus says, hey, you know, Go get your husband. Why? Because Jesus is about ready to point out the area of need, the heart of the matter. The woman said, stirred, and said to Jesus, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said. Did she really? Did she really? I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. And that you have spoken truly. I would more so say, you're lying, <laughs> you know. Uh, although you did answer right, you have five husbands and the one you're with is not your own. Why does Jesus bring it to that point? Why does he go there? The Samaritan woman leads the conversation from this point on in verse 20 and she says, after Jesus tells her that she has Five husbands and the one she's, not, she's with now is not her own. She goes and starts talking about worship. Now, if that's not awkward, you're, you're ta- you, the Jesus is, you, some of you guys are not tracking with me. Jesus just point out an adultery in her life. I mean, listen, it's one thing to have one failed marriage. And who knows, maybe one of her husbands died. Maybe they all died. Maybe it was none of that. 
But there was some sense of adultery because the one husband, he didn't say like man, he didn't define this person as an acquaintance. He said, the husband you have now is not your own. That means this man belonged to somebody else. And so there's something crazy going on. There is something crazy going on. And the woman decides to turn the conversation, much like she did throughout the rest of the text, to worship. <laughs> Jesus is brilliant. Because in none of this does she, he condemn, does he accuse. He kindly and lovingly leads her. And ultimately, he brings her to this place because the first couple of times he tried to show her the depth of her need, she wasn't registering. And I'm sure by Jesus saying this, listen to me, he touched a deep nerve within this woman. I mean, you just don't have any guy coming to you and say, hey, you know, let me tell you something. I mean, I, I, I don't have that gift. I mean, I don't know many people who do, but I mean, if, if something is to be shared like that, you have to believe that there's some kind of nerve being like, oh, is this man You're reading your email and so Jesus kindly again even though she did lie a little bit she said you've rightly spoken you know sets her up but he does all this to point out now hey listen maybe maybe in some place Jesus didn't want to even go to this level of conversation if you look at the first 19 chapters and you see that he continually tries to bring her to this place of like, hey, listen, I can give you something. I can give you living water that will satisfy you. You, you will never thirst again. And, and all the while she's saying, well, where are you going to get this water? She's trying to keep it, you know, externally, on the external things. Jesus trying to bring it to the depth. So Jesus goes to the core and the woman brings up this, this response in verse 20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Although this conversation, this woman is focused, again, on externals, even here, after Jesus points out, you have five husbands and the one that you're with is not your own, even here, she seems to want to keep things on the external surface. Isn't that true of us? You know, if somebody starts prying, you know, in relationship, and, we, you know, we all have our skeletons in our closets, don't we? Come on, let's just be honest. I mean, you know, we're... We are saved by grace, but we got, we got some things going on in our lives, you know? We're, you know, we, I'm not saying that we're like this woman, but we have some things that we protect, that we keep hidden, that we keep, you know, kind of out of the, the sight of others and their discernment or their care or their love. Whoa. But she tries to keep things, and she goes to some talk about worship, about where the Jews worship, uh, 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 you know, uh, comparatively to where the Samaritans worship. And you've got to understand, there was tension there. I mean, these guys set up a sanctuary on a tall mountain, not so that God could be glorified, but they could, couldn't compete with the Jewish people, the temple, and say, hey, listen, Jew, Jerusalem is not the only place to worship. You see our, see our mountain here? And even unto this day, that temple had, was destroyed. I, I, I forget by what emperor, what leader, but it was destroyed. And they still went to the mountain and worshipped God. They didn't have a place to do it, and they just open-field it. I just made that up. Jesus is willing, but this is the gracious thing about Jesus. He is willing to go with her into this topic but he's not willing. Listen to me now. Tune in, okay? Tune in. Tune in your ears. Say, ears, listen. In Jesus' name. He is willing to uh, go and entertain this topic and this conversation, but he is not willing to let her limit the issue or limit the issue to location. He will pass right into the heart of the matter. In verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, nor in Jerusalem. Now, here's a Jewish man. You have to understand, culturally, historically, these guys were happy about their temple. And here's a Jewish guy saying, hey, listen, no longer in the city of David. That's one thing to call it the Samaritans, no longer on that mountain, you know, and kind of do what every other pious Jew did and kind of just exalt, you know, Jerusalem. But here's Jesus saying, no longer will on this mountain are in Jerusalem, will you worship the Father? And notice that he says Father. She made it about mountains. Jesus makes it about the Father. Hear me now. 
you're hearing me. I, I, I hope to make sense of this. Are you okay? Everybody all right? Okay. So in other words, he's saying, ma'am, there is a day coming sooner than you think when both these mountains will be irrelevant to true worship. That's amazing, again, for a Jew to say. The day is coming, he says, when Jerusalem, the holy city, track with me, the holy city, the city of David, the place with the temple of God will not be the focus of worship. That's what this Jewish carpenter is saying. That, that speaks multitudes to me. Maybe not to you. It probably just went over your head. But Jesus makes the Father. He emphasized the Father. She probably at this point expected a good argument from Jesus, much like many Jews, to defend Jerusalem as the focal point of worship. But Jesus rejects the whole argument completely. Instead, he says, we are on the brink of something new. And he can say this. Why? Because he's the Son of God. He's actually the one that's going to provide this something new. This new way of worship. Understand, Jesus had no affection towards the temple. What did he say? He said, listen, in three days, I'm going to destroy this place. I'm going to rebuild it. He wasn't talking about that physical structure. He's talking about himself. I'm, I'm going to destroy. I'm going to go into the depths of the grave. I'm going to remove that stone. I'm going to walk out there. And you guys are going to be on the brink of something new. You're not, you have to understand culturally. Look at the Gospels. Look at the Pharisees. They always made things into, well, Moses, the temple. And here's this woman doing the same thing. The mountain where we worship. It's all just externals. It's all just like places and locations and traditions. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. I'm going to do something new where not your temple gets the accolades, if that's the right word, not gets the props. I'm going to make the focal point of worship, point of worship, the Father. This is exactly what he's doing with this woman. Instead, I'm sorry, so she probably did expect an argument to kind of come up, but instead of where we worship, Jesus focuses what? On whom we worship, just simply by introducing the Father. On who we worship and how we worship. Remember, the closing remarks are somewhere in there, I think around 24, Jesus talks about worshiping the Lord in spirit and truth up until this point. is about location, traditions, Father. Remember the girl, she's like, hey, are you greater than our father, Jacob? Doesn't that sound like some of the same language that the Pharisees had when it came to Jesus? Well, Moses. And I wonder, now let's just 2015 it. (laughs) Good. I wonder how much we do that. I wonder how much we make it more about these external things. Is the sound right? Is that singer in right key? Are they doing the right songs? Man, there's no drum set here. I wonder if we ourselves in the charismatic age, if you would, are getting it tremendously wrong when it comes to worship. Hear me. I love what we have. I love that we have it. I love that we have bands like... Hillsong and and Bethel and all these guys. And I know there's more, but that's who I like. So get off me. (laughs) I know we have them. I'm grateful for them. But how much is our worship becoming idle? How much of our worship is more, more idolatry than it is a true heart of worship? See, Jesus always goes to the heart of the issue. And we somehow in our little services try to keep it about what we have and what we can do. Fake it and make it. Or fake it until we make it. And essentially, we come through Romans and John chapter 4 to understand that worship has nothing to do with any of this. You like that? That was a... Is this Okay. Notice the reference again to Father in verse 21. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Now, she didn't say that. She kind of gave props to Jacob. Jesus said that. Why did he say that? Jesus uses this, now hear me, to link her reference to the Samaritan fathers and to draw her attention to the one and all important Father, Father God. He essentially... 
he says, uh, I'm sorry. So the focus, again, she does, the Samaritan woman, just finding myself in my notes, give me grace. She focuses on the externals of place and tradition. The father seems to be, the fathers seem to be very prominent in her mind. But Jesus shifts the focus. He shifts it, and he doesn't say, well, real Jewish fathers worshipped in Jerusalem. He says, there is a father. You should care about him, namely the father, who wants to be worshipped, not in any particular place or in any particular mountain, but he wants to make himself worshipped, not tradition, not form, not structures. Jesus used the reply. Jesus used the reply of the woman to make a profound statement that transcended again the argument of verse 21. Just recapping. Jesus first turned the dis- discussion away from the place um, to the object of worship. Jesus, hear me, he, he turned the conversation from the mountain to the person, to, to God the Father. In other words, Jesus taught that worship must uh, share something of the nature of the person being worshipped. Did, did I say that right? Jesus taught that worship must share something of the nature of the person being worshipped. That prompts the question to me, what did Jesus teach about worship? What did he say? What, did he, what parables did he give? You know, I think one excellent uh, teaching of worship is found here in John chapter 4. But I would say that more than Jesus' teaching, and there's plenty content to pull from when it comes to his teaching on worship, I would say it's more about the particular way that he lived. The way he loved. The way he uh, served. The way he gave of himself. The way he obeyed the Father even unto death. His compassion. I think for me, that seems to be, even in light of Romans chapter 12, a, 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 a correct reaction to God. A correct response to worshiping the Father. Not necessarily what we say again, but how did he live? And I believe that Jesus lived in a way that worshipped God. Now you could probably make the argument, well, he was the son of God. He was God. But didn't he learn all things through obedience? Doesn't the Bible say that he was faced, he was tempted in every way? Even here at the well, he's thirsty. He's fully God and fully man. And now he calls us to worship in the same manner. And it's essentially what he's doing here with the woman at the well. He calls us to worship God in the same manner that he explains to this woman. Don't make it about, the, don't make it about these things. I want to, and, and he does that by showing the need, the cavernous need of her heart. You have five husbands and the one you're with is not your own. I didn't want to go there, but we're going there. Why? Because he cares. And this woman goes on to have a great testimony She goes on to, she goes into Samaria and things start happening in that city, in that town and God is glorified. She met the Messiah. And Samaritan people, Deuteronomy 16, they were not clueless about this Messiah that one day would come. So Jesus shows us the example of worship through the way He lived, loved, obeyed, cared, gave, Let's look at just maybe a little hard content of what Jesus, one of the things Jesus said about worship. You can turn with me to Matthew chapter 15 now. You're going to have to pull up the bootstraps of your pants here. This might be a little hard for some of us. Um, I don't say it uh, of of, of any knowledge of anything other than in studying. This is a cross-reference and my heart was provoked and touched by the words of Jesus, especially in light of my sermon today. Matthew 15, 8 through 9. It says this, um, i got to actually turn there, 15, 8 and 9. Here it goes. It says, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching doctrines, the commandments of man. In explaining to the Pharisees 
there's a conversation that happens, and it's all about why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat? I mean, come on. What are, what are we doing here? I mean, I, my wife does the same thing to me. You know, I, I don't want to wash my hands. I didn't go to the bathroom. It's not like anything disgusting happened. But you pat the dog. Well, he's a dog. What do you want me to do? Like, so you sterilize your whole body after you're hanging out with my dogs, like walk through this mist, this mist of essential oils. Okay, I'm ready. Let's eat. <laughs> There's this conversation where, where, where somehow the Pharisees are like, hey, why don't your bros like wash their hands before they're like, what's wrong? They're disobeying the law. And explaining to the Pharisees, Jesus teaches in previous verses that it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles, but it's what comes out of the mouth. Jesus taught that people who only draw near to him with their mouths and refuse what? To give him their hearts. Aren't we talking about the heart? All along, the heart of worship. The woman at the well, Jesus getting to the heart of the matter. Isn't that what he says? These people draw near to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips. But what? Their hearts are far from me. Why does Jesus say that? Because God Jesus, He cares so much and places so much value on the inner place, the inward place of man that He does on the outer. But you know the funny thing about it is we kind of use that as some kind of religious cliche in the church. But ultimately, if Jesus has the inner man, He has your outer. You know, we don't use that as an excuse to say, hey, I just, you know, whatever, I just live the way, you know, do what I want, and Jesus cares about the inward places, yeah. But Jesus cares about it because He knows if He has your heart, He's got your lips. He knows if He has your heart, He's got your hands, He's got your eyes, He's got your mouth, He's got you. And when you, see, the thing is, just like this woman, we reverse it sometimes. You know, we, we, get, it, we, get, we get it wrong about worship, and Jesus is like, no, 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 no. I care about the, the, the things that necessarily can't be seen, although they can in your words, they can in your deeds, they can in your language, in, in your actions, in your, in your uh, sexuality, let's say, in your finances. Oh, we shouldn't talk about that. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's where you'll see it the most, friend. And so Jesus taught people who only draw near to him with their mouths refuse, and refuse to give him their hearts, that their worship, what, is in vain. Essentially, it's empty. It lacks everything. It lacks meaning, sincerity, and purpose. It is a waste of time. Friend, we can come here this morning. We can lift our hands. Fake it till we make it. But man, if there's not a true thing going on in here, guess what? All this is empty, useless, it's vain. You might as well pack it up, shut shop, and that's a problem in Malachi. Their worship was so askew. Malachi the prophet said, listen, shut it down. You'd be, be- I'm sorry for yelling. You'd be better off stopping instead of continue in this vanity, this emptiness, because you're not sincere. I don't have your hearts. You're just giving me your lips. You're just giving me your words. You're just lifting your hands. You're just singing a song. And I have no access, no possession, no right And we know that God is just not a lover. He, listen, Isaiah was touched by God. What was his response? For I am a man of unclean lips. God is a lover, yes, but he's also a savior. He is also a king. And the last thing, you and I probably are going to react at first glance of God on that day. It's a loving God. We are going to bow down much like Isaiah did. And we are going to say, whoa, whoa. You're a God that should be feared. God wants our hearts. Jesus taught that true worship is a matter of the heart. And it's best expressed, listen to me, through a lifestyle of holiness. <laughs> Jesus taught that true worship is a matter of the heart, but best expressed through a lifestyle of worship. Some of us don't even have a grid. You're saying, you're trying to pile up religion on me. No. Jesus went through great lengths not to force you unto holiness and righteousness, but provide a way for you to become righteous 
and holy. And friend, it is not on this side of eternity. You will not lack righteousness and holiness in heaven. (laughs) You will be perfect. Things will be perfect. We are talking about this life. And the good thing about it is we're not religious about our approach to it at all. Again, (laughs) what happens in here affects everything out here. And if Jesus has this, he has all this. He's got it all. Jesus is strong language with the Pharisees, and we'll close here. Jesus' strong language with the Pharisees in Matthew 15 reflects not so much personal animosity towards the Pharisees as it does total repudiation or rejection of the approach that religion takes in emphasizing externals and ignoring the true condition or the true state of a person. In other words, Jesus cares about the heart, the inward parts of man and his condition. Jesus was less concerned with the surface level of the law here in Matthew 15. Listen to me. Because your, your mind is going to get tricked up. You're just trying to place that religion on me, Ricky Bobby. Which is trying to make me, you know, just trying to get me to do something. No, I'm not trying to get you to do anything. It's already been done. It's been provided for. It's just waiting for you to walk in it. Jesus was less concerned with the surface level of the law than with the essential principle of it. If external purity matters to these Pharisees, how much more should inward purity matter? And that was the argument. And that was Jesus. He wasn't trying to belittle the law. That's what we think. We think Jesus, in, by saying he came to destroy, he just came to do, you know, just destroy it. Just like, put it out. God, you, you screwed up, God. Now I have to fix it all. That's the way we treat the law. That's the way we treat the moral code of the law. God, you got it wrong, and Jesus got to clean it up. No. God got it right. Everything was just foreshadowing Jesus, his coming, from his, the sacrifice to the law to God's mercy. It all is the same story, part of the same narrative. Again, Jesus was less concerned with the surface level of the law, much like the Pharisees were. If you read Matthew 15, the first um, seven verses, um, then with the essential principle of what they were trying to discuss, if external purity matters, how much more does internal purity matter? Proverbs 23, 26, excuse me, says this, My son... Give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. You notice that, that the giving of the heart comes before the eyes of the observation of the Lord's ways. And again, I just want to echo and, and, and kind of say this again, that it's not so much, yes, the outer shell and its condition and its choices and its behavior it's about this and as God works on this those outer things reflect Jesus they reflect the nature the person the character of Jesus see some of us are settling for a a wrong gospel we think the only thing that Jesus did would just come to snatch us from hell I'm not trying to belittle that I'm not trying to belittle that at all Jesus came to give us life and life more abundantly He came to make us victorious. You will not need to be victorious in heaven, friend. You will not worry about unrighteousness. You will not worry about your sexual, financial, your uh, gossip problems. You will not worry about your hatred towards others, your offense. You will not worry about that in heaven. But if you think for one moment that that's what God sent His Son to die for, is just to give you an opportunity in heaven for eternity and totally live and do what you want here on earth, all under the blanket of grace, you've missed it. And ultimately, it's not a matter of us trying to convince you. It's just a matter of you living far below what Christ has provided. And in that, and in that, where I'm going with this, this is not a purity message, this is a worship message. 
Because in our righteousness, in our purity, in our surrender to God and His Lordship, the Father is glorified tremendously. Let's close our eyes. I'm not going to give an altar call. Quite frankly, I'm I'm tired of altar calls. Only because sometimes we do very little with what we hear. We do. We, we we hear things. We're we're very like we're we're impulsive. We have impulsive behavior. You know, I'm just gonna give today. I'm just gonna write the check, or I'm I'm just gonna I'm just gonna not talk bad about Daryl because I hate that guy. You know, we're so impulsive. I'm just not gonna look at that. But God wants to make us steady. He doesn't want us to be impulsive. He doesn't want, uh, out of his people, a behavior that just moves because we suddenly got conviction or we suddenly got, you know, the awareness of what we're doing is wrong and it needs to change. No, God wants a steady rhythm of right living because he gave so much for it. Guys, he gave so much for it. This is not religion. This is understanding that which Christ has provided for us. And as we understand that, we get to glorify God in it. But that's where true worship flows or comes out of. It's not our music. It's not our nice songs of which we're grateful for. It's our hearts. It's our lives. And God just doesn't want some of it. He wants all of it. He wants all of it. And he went through a great amount to get it all. Um, Lord, we thank you for this series. Um, Lord, we just ask God that you would lead us. Um, Lord, if we're to continue, where we're to go next, Lord. Lord, we want to know you. But Lord, more than just stopping at knowledge, Lord, we want to respond. Lord, we don't just want to hear and not respond. We don't want to just hear message after message and not have it affect and change our life and its course and its direction. So God, we just ask, Lord, that you would give us grace. Lord, not a grace that prolongs, not a grace that is impulsive, Lord, or responds impulsively. Lord, a grace that that calls us higher, a grace that uh, calls us deeper, a, 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 a grace that calls us into living uh, as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice to God that is holy and acceptable. Lord, that's what you said. Uh, that's what you said through Paul, your servant. You said in this type of worship, this kind of living as sacrifices is an acceptable act of worship. Lord, that's what we want. Lord, we do want good music, but Lord, we want even a better heart. We, we do want to have our songs and we do want to have our bands and we want to grow and worship. We want to grow a worship movement here in New England. But God, more than that, we want to give you our lives. We want to give you our hearts because we know in that, Lord, that's truly where you are glorified. And so help us, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.